Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height or depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our study today, let's go to the Lord and ask his guidance and direction on our time. Father, it is in your word that We are told that your word is likened to light. In light, our thinking, our lives are illuminated, and in the light of your word, our thinking is illuminated, that we may understand truth and that we may know what truth is, what absolute truth is, that we may therefore orient all of the other aspects of life, all the details of life, all of our activities, all of our thoughts, our emotions to the overarching eternal truths that are uh, revealed to us in your word. Father, during this time, we pray that we might be able to submit ourselves to the discipline of study of your word, to focus, to concentrate, and that as we learn what your word emphasizes, that we may make that the emphasis of our own lives and that we may learn to put your word first and foremost above everything else and that we may learn to interpret life and to understand life in the light of your word and not try to understand your word in the light of our experience. So, Father, we pray, too, that as we study through Colossians, that we might come to have a greater understanding and appreciation for who the Lord Jesus Christ is, for his supremacy, for his uh, sufficiency, for all that he has provided for us and all that he is to us, and that this might make a difference in the way we live. We pray this now in his name. Amen. During the singing today, we sang, uh, the second hymn that we sang was Redeemed. I always like and enjoy that hymn. That's one one of my favorites. And the last line states, I think... Of my blessed Redeemer. I like that. It doesn't say how, talk about how I feel about Jesus, but what I think about Jesus. And that is very important, and that is at the core of the epistle to the Colossians. Is Paul is talking about what and who Jesus is and what he has done for us and its significance, and we have to learn to think correctly and properly about Jesus. This is the problem that the Colossian heresy brought into the city is that they had a pseudo-Christ. They had a Christ that was oriented to this 
uh, mixed up proto, that means early, uh, proto-Gnostic heresy that was a uh, weird combination of, of uh, legalism and legalism from Judaism, uh, a dualism from mysticism and Persian uh, influence, as well as uh, certain uh, proto-Gnostic ideas that were floating around from Greek philosophy, emphasizing a special form of knowledge that was available only to the uh, spiritual uh, elite. And so uh, what Paul is doing is contrasting the true Christ with these false Christs that end up being anemic, empty, uh, limited uh, figures that cannot really do anything close to what the real, true, biblical Jesus Christ can do. And so we will learn to focus upon who Jesus is and to think about our blessed Redeemer as Scripture has defined him. This is why this was also exemplified in the song that the choir sang, I would rather have Jesus. And if you think about those words as they sing through that song, there is a constant comparison with Jesus and creation that he is superior to every detail in life, every aspect of the creation. And there is nothing in our experience, nothing in our lives, nothing in our friendships, nothing in our social network, nothing in uh, our jobs that even approaches the value of our relationship and our daily walk with the Lord Jesus Christ. So that is the message of Colossians. And this morning what I want to do is take us through the whole epistle uh, to the Colossians so that we can have an understanding of what is being said here. I like to do this sort of a flyover ahead of time uh, before we get into the details so we can orient to the landscape of the particular book that uh, that we're going to study. So often we get so focused on analyzing not just the trees and lose sight of the forest, but we're down taking each cell apart and, and uh, analyzing all of the DNA structures in each particular cell so that we can truly come to understand the nature of the tree that we have to go back up uh, now and then and take a look at the whole so that once we have an accurate understanding of the details and what some might think are minutia, we can then understand the whole. And what I find is that in many cases, not all cases, but in many cases, there's so much of a people doing a flyover that they make a lot of mistakes because they haven't done the technical work in the minutia. And I'm constantly getting course adjustments myself as I dig down into the minutia of the text and am constantly growing and modifying and adjusting my own understanding of the scriptures as I get into the minutia. It's amazing how uh, major issues and significant doctrines are fine-tuned as we come to understand uh, minutia in various sections of, of, the, of the scriptures. So today we're looking at the big picture, uh, the flyover. And the focal point of Colossians, the message of Colossians, is that the sufficient Jesus Christ changes lives. Only the sufficient Jesus Christ changes lives. Paul's message is that the 
Jesus Christ of reality, the Jesus Christ of the scriptures, is the only, is the only Christ that satisfies all of our needs. He is the only Christ that is sufficient for every need that the human being has. Uh, only the biblical Jesus Christ can deal with every problem and difficulty in our life, and that the other Christs, other messiahs, other uh, philosophical ideas and other religions are found extremely wanting in comparison to a true understanding of the biblical Christ. And so this fits his structure in this epistle. The first two chapters are focusing on the superiority, the supremacy, the sufficiency of Jesus Christ, who he is as the one in whom the fullness of deity dwells bodily, that he is one with the eternal God, the creator of the universe, a term that we'll run into a few times as we get later, get into our study of uh, this first chapter is a rather old theological term that uh, I've talked about before called perichoresis. Perichoresis is a term that uh, was originally coined and used in the early church to describe the interpenetration of the members of the Godhead. So often we're focusing on the distinctiveness of the persons of the Godhead that we struggle when it comes to the unity of the Trinity, the unity of the Godhead. And what we say of one person of the Trinity is true of all the persons of the Trinity. They are equally sovereign, equally uh, love, equally just and righteous, equally eternal, equally omniscient, omnipotent, and omnipresent, equally truth and equally immutable. They are then identical in their essence. And so what is said of one is true of the other. So when we talk about the Father as creator, the Son also is creator. The Holy Spirit is creator. They had distinct roles, but we can also speak of them being part and parcel of what the other members did because of the unity concept uh, within the Trinity. And it is on this foundation of the eternality of Jesus Christ and the one who is the creator, preserver, sustainer of the universe that Paul is going to build his understanding of who Jesus Christ is in the second chapter. And we focus then on what he did in terms of our uh, reconciliation to God and the forgiveness that and the wiping out and eradication of, of sin and the sin penalty at the cross. And if you don't understand who Jesus is from chapter 1, you can't really comprehend the depth and breadth of what Jesus did on the cross in chapter 2. And if you don't understand those two, you can't really get to the bottom line application of chapter 3. I've said this many times that if you ask the Apostle Paul to explain something before he started talking about some little everyday thing, like if you asked him how to cook a hamburger, he would start in the throne room of God. <laughs> and he would make sure that you understood that the grain that made the flour that was necessary for the, for the bun and the cow that provided the meat that was ground up 
to be the burger patty, that they were all created by God, Genesis chapter 1. And so for a Christian, your thought about the bun and your thought about the burger is not the same as the pagan. It's a different burger for the Christian than it is for the pagan. Because for the pagan, it's a product of time plus chance. It just happened to be that way. But for the Christian, it is by God's specific, directive, sovereign plan, and he is the creator and the provider of everything that is there. And only then, after making sure we understood that, would Paul then talk about how you process the beef and how you cook the beef and how you make the bun and how you put it all together and everything else. And most of us want to forget the what we would call the theoretical thought, which is how philosophy categorizes that, the abstract ideas, and we just want to get down to the nuts and bolts. That's because we're American pragmatists. The word that Paul uses for that is worldliness. See, we want to leap to the application without understanding the whys and the wherefores that lie behind the application. There's another word for that. It's called legalism. Never thought of it that way, did you? Legalism says, go do these ten things and you'll be fine. But see, the scripture says that it's not just the external observance of things that uh, makes you spiritual, gives you a relationship with God and allows you to grow spiritually. It You do the things that we're supposed to do because the internal thinking has changed. We don't want to be like the Pharisees and just be whitewashed tombstones with dead stuff inside. We need to change from the inside first, and then that changes what we do on the outside. But as Americans, we also don't have much patience with that. That's part of our zeitgeist, part of the... Uh, thinking of our world as opposed to the thinking of the Greeks or the Romans at the time of Christ. And so we want to hurry up, get past the theoretical, and get to the nuts and bolts so that we can figure out how to live our lives. And we don't realize that to live our lives in service to God demands that we first change the way we think. That's what Paul says in Romans 12, 1 and 2. We are not to be conformed to the... To the world, there he uses the the Greek word that has to do with the age, the spirit of the age, but we are to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. It is thinking. That's why that last verse says that I think about Jesus. It is our thinking that is at the core of our living, and so we have to make sure we don't uh, just short-circuit that. So the first two chapters are going to focus on the supremacy, the superiority, and the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. We learn who he is in the first chapter, and we learn what he did for us in the second chapter, and why that is then superior to this false teaching that is being popularized in Colossae. It is contrary to the uh, legalism that has come out of uh, the Judaizers, it is contrary to the mysticism that comes out of the culture, and it is also contrary to the asceticism that is part of that that culture and that false religion uh, as well. And then having established that, then Paul goes into the second part of the epistle in chapter 3, where he talks about the fact that because Jesus is the sufficient superior, supreme Lord of the universe, 
then we must submit to his authority. We must live a certain way. This is not just some abstract doctrine, but it changes the way you think and the way you live. And it is at that point that we begin to see a series of imperatives. Imperatives are commands that are directed toward our volition, addressing the fact that as believers we should live, think, think, live, or act a certain way. The first imperative that we find in the book is in 216. The second paragraph, the second imperative is in 218, where Paul says, first of all, in 16, let no one judge you. In verse 18, he says, let no one cheat you. Those are the only two imperatives in the first section of the epistle, and they come near the end as Paul is beginning to transition into application. But once we get into chapter 3, we start hitting a series of imperatives. In verse 1, we're commanded to seek those things which are above. In verse 2, set your mind on things above. For neo, a verb meaning to think. Again, emphasizing thought first, action later. Then we get into verse 5. Put to death your members which are on the earth. Then we get into verse 8. Put off all of these, anger, wrath, etc. Then we get into verse 9, do not lie to one another. We get to verse 12, um, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, uh, long-suffering. Verse 14, put on love. You see, and that's not the end of the commands. There's just command after command after command. This is where you get into the nuts and bolts. Legalism jumps to a series of commands and says, let's focus on just doing these things without ever understanding the why, the wherefore, the thought frame that should lie behind and should motivate the actions. That's why it's legalism is because it just focuses on superficial action as opposed to the internal thought shift. Now, in terms of looking at a person's life, you have person A who doesn't lie, doesn't cheat, is very moral, and you have person B that doesn't lie, doesn't cheat, and is very moral. One is doing it superficially, that's legalism. The other person's doing it out of an understanding of grace and biblical truth. Externally, they might look the same, but internally you have the difference between a person who is a vibrant, living uh, active believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, and the other person is just a, a, a dead man looking like he's trying to look like he's alive, and it doesn't uh, produce anything of spiritual value. Now let's go back and just look at the first half of the book a little bit to pick up some of the key things. In the first two verses, we have our uh, typical salutation uh, from the Apostle Paul, where he identifies himself and that he is writing uh, accompanied by Timothy, and that he's addressing the saints and believers in Christ who are in Colossae. And he says, grace to you and peace from God. Now, even though this is a typical salutation for the Apostle Paul, when you look at this through the eyes of the Colossians who are being influenced by this heresy, who think of the Old Testament God, that ultimately the God of gods is way, 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 way out there. And then there's this series of, eman, uh, of uh, uh, emanations that have come forth from him, the Old Testament God, Jesus, angels, prophets, this whole chain of, uh, 
of being that's there, uh, and that you really never know the ultimate God of gods, this just has a nuance to it that explodes that whole viewpoint. Because what Paul is saying is that it is God who directly gives us grace and peace. There's no a ladder of emanations in between us and God. And so he has these little uh, statements like that that take on uh, a different significance in this epistle in light of the thinking of those to whom he is he is writing. Then he begins in verse 3 to focus on prayer. 3 through 14, focus on prayer. 3 talks about what Paul is praying for and his thankfulness to, to God for what has been provided uh, in the Corinthian, I mean, in the Colossians and their spiritual life. And then verses 9 through 14 talk about what he is specifically praying for in terms of these Colossian believers in their spiritual life. Uh, what we see in verses 3 through 8 is a focus on thankfulness for something that is future. He says in verse 3, he says in verse 3, we give thanks to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Then he says, by praying, it's a instrumental participle there, by praying always for you. And the next verse is an explanation of the constant prayer for them. Verse 5 says, starts, because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, and that, uh, that completes the thought and explains the cause of his gratitude. We, the main clause reads, we give thanks to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ because of the hope which is laid up for you. He has a future orientation here, and he talks about their present faith, the application of that faith in their relationships in terms of their love for one another, and that this is oriented towards a future destiny, which is the hope that has been laid up for them in heaven. So we see that Paul's famous triad is evident in these three verses, faith, hope, and love. But it is the hope that is future that is the cause of his thankfulness. We'll see also in this paragraph that this that faith, hope, and love is based upon truth. Twice we have this emphasis on truth. That also would resonate against the thinking of the uh, of those who hold to this uh, false teaching in Colossae. They have this hope because of the word of truth of the gospel. And that at the end of verse 6, he says that they are thankful because the gospel has brought forth fruit among them since the day they heard of it and knew the grace of God in truth. So we have this emphasis on truth in various places. And again, we have the mention of bringing forth fruit in verse 6. Fruit being fruitful is again mentioned in verse 10 and several other times in the epistles. So this is a major focus for Paul is that our understanding of our salvation and the fullness of the gospel, not in the charismatic sense, but in the biblical sense, how the gospel impacts every area of life, then produces spiritual growth and spiritual uh, productivity. 
In verses 9 through 14, we see Paul's specific petition on behalf of the Colossians, and the focus of his prayer is that believers can be filled with knowledge so that they may live worthy of the Lord. He wants them to be filled with knowledge toward an end. His purpose is that we can walk or live. Walking is always a metaphor for living, that we can live in a manner that is worthy of the Lord. In light of all that he is and all that he has done for us, then in gratitude we should live in a manner worthy of him. So he states in verse 9 that he is, does not cease praying for them, and this purpose is, to, is given at the beginning of verse 10, that you may walk worthy of the Lord. Now, that desire, that end game worthy walk is defined by three, uh, by, excuse me, by four uh, participles. These participles are best understood as instrumental or means. How do we walk worthy? We walk worthy by, number one, being fruitful in every good work. Number two, we walk worthy by increasing in the knowledge of God. How do you increase in the knowledge of God? You increase in the knowledge of God by studying his word and making that a priority in your life so that nothing that we do is more important than our understanding of who God is and what he has done for us and our understanding of his word. So first of all, we walk worthy by being fruitful, second, by increasing in the knowledge of God, third, by being strengthened with all might. That relates to the power of the Holy Spirit. It's a similar phrase to what Paul uses in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 12, relating to the fact that God is the one who strengthens us in the angelic conflict in spiritual warfare. So third, we are strengthened with all might, according to his glorious power, and fourth, giving thanks. So gratitude is an essential part of our worthy walk to the Lord. But that gratitude then is related to four reasons, four reasons that we are to give thanks. We give thanks to the Father, first of all, because he qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in life. So this is going to bring us into the whole doctrine of judgments and rewards, which was the topic that I taught to the uh, college students at uh, in Kiev this year, and I teach that every other year. So we'll get into the whole doctrine of uh, judgment and rewards and inheritance. So the first basis, the first reason for gratitude is that we're qualified to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. Second reason we're grateful is because he has delivered us from the power of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his son. Now, the kingdom hasn't been established yet, so this is generally understood as a proleptic uh, view of the kingdom. That is, this is our destiny. That fits within the context because he's talking about inheritance, which is future. He talked about hope, which is future. So the kingdom also is future. The hope is our position in the kingdom where we receive our inheritance. All of this is future-oriented. So the first reason for thanks is we're qualified to be partakers of the inheritance. Second, he's delivered us from the power of darkness. Third, he transferred us into the kingdom of the son of his love. And fourth, we have redemption through his blood. 
Now, the last phrase isn't something separate. It's an appositional phrase that explains redemption. Redemption is the payment of a price that pays off a debt. What we'll see is that this, these two ideas of redemption and forgiveness are further expanded when we get into the second chapter, specifically in verses 13 through uh, 15, 13 and 14 specifically, that the forgiveness of sins has to do with the eradication of the certificate of debt that was against us and that we have objective forgiveness of the sin penalty which took place at the cross. Then, having focused on the, his prayer, then Paul transitions in verse 15 to the next section in this, uh, in the first, the next major division of this first section of the, of the epistle. And from verse 15 down through, uh, chapter 2, verse 7, we learn that only the true Christ is sufficient because he is superior to all. He is the he is sovereign over creation. We learn, first of all, in verse 15, that he is the image of the invisible God. That means he is an exact replication of the invisible uh, God, the Father, who has not been seen, but we have known him only through Jesus, according to John chapter 1. Second, Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. Now, we think of firstborn as first in order, but firstborn in Greek has the idea of eminence, of position, not, uh, not order. So he is the preeminent one who is over all creation. Third, we learn that he is the creator. By him, all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth. Now, when we understand this in light of perichoresis, we realize he is the, he is both involved directly in creation, but in terms of the unity of the Godhead, he is just as much uh, the creator as the Father or the Holy Spirit. So Paul can speak of him as being the one who created all things that are in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, thrones, dominions, principalities, or powers. That includes all of the immaterial as well as the material. Now, why is that important? Because of the dualism in this Colossian heresy that draws a distinction between matter and that which is spirit. And that which is matter is somehow tainted by uh, sin and finitude and is not as significant as that which is spiritual. And so what Paul is emphasizing here is that God is equally the creator of all that is immaterial as well as all that is material, all that is spirit as well as all that is physical. And you cannot draw this distinction saying that one is superior uh, to the other. Third, third we are fourth we learn in verse 17 that he is the one who sustains and maintains the universe all things he is before all things spirit and matter physical and immaterial he is before all things and in him all things material and immaterial spirit and physical all things consist he sustains the universe man can't mess it up we can mess up a few little things, a river here, this and that, but we can't do what the global warming people think that we can do because Jesus Christ is in control, and he has built internal scrubbers into the warp and woof of physical reality so that man cannot destroy himself. 
He'll come close to it, but that's all under the sovereign control of God, and we just have to wait for the tribulation before it really gets bad. Uh, it's not there yet. You just think it is. So fourth, he's the sustainer, and fifth, he is the head of the body. He is, and head, as we'll learn, does not have to do with source, like the head or source of a river. We use English that way sometimes, but Greek is never used that way. Head has to do with authority. It has to do with the person who is in charge. Um, you get into problems today with uh, feminists because they want to try to make head mean source, that the woman, that the man is the source of the woman rather than the authority over the woman. Uh, a good friend of mine, Wayne House, has written excellent material on this. Wayne was a lawyer. He also did has one master's degree in um, in patristics, which is the early church fathers. He knows Latin. He knows Greek. Uh, Wayne is a very good scholar in a number of areas, and he was he was debating one of the leading evangelical feminists at a Presbyterian. Uh, College up in um, up in Seattle area. What's the name of that school? Wentworth, Whitmore, Whitmore, Whitworth. So he's debating there, and uh, I think he was debating Catherine Crager, and she goes through in her debate and makes this position that head means source. She doesn't know Greek from Chinese. Wayne, this was right after uh, computers had really started to catch on with Bible study. Wayne reached in his briefcase and pulled out a printout that was about this thick of every use of kephale, the Greek word for head, in ancient Greek, classical Greek, Koine Greek, all Greek literature. And he said, I've got a list here of every use of, of kephale in ancient Greek literature. Would you please point out the places where kephale means source? It never means source. There's not one place of it. He just... It took that college about two semesters to get over what Wayne did in that particular debate. So Jesus Christ is the head. He is the authority of the body. That is the body of Christ, the church, who is the beginning. He is the beginning, the firstborn, that is, in relationship to the resurrection. He is the firstfruits, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, he's the firstfruits, the firstborn of the dead, that in all things he may have preeminence. Then that's related to reconciliation, beginning in verse 19, and that by him uh, all things were reconciled to himself by him. That is, to himself in reference to not only Jesus, but the entire Trinity. There's reconciliation took place by him on the cross, and he, notice Paul says whether things on earth or things in heaven. Once again, it includes both the physical and the spiritual, the material and the immaterial. This is a direct uh, assault on the teaching of the proto-Gnostics, the teaching the heresy in Colossae. And then in verse 21, he says, You who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works... Yet now he has reconciled in the body of his flesh, material. He wasn't just some uh, apparent ghost that appeared on the cross. That was the teaching of docetism, the idea that you just had this, this uh, apparent manifestation of Jesus. But he wasn't really physical. Here he's emphasizing the physicality of his body on the cross in contrast to the Colossian heresy. 
And then in, starting in verse 24, he says, he goes on to say that because of who Jesus Christ is and what he has done in verses 15 to 23, Paul says he is now a minister to all. He says in verse 24, I now rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up in my flesh. See, once again, he's dealing with this contrast between the flesh and the spirit, the material and the immaterial, the physical and the spiritual. He says, it fills up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ. Talking about the sufficiency of Christ in our day-to-day physical existence. He goes on to talk about the fact that on the basis of this, he became a minister according to the uh, stewardship or responsibility from God given to him and to teach the mystery which had been hidden from the ages and from generations. This is not the mystery of the Gnostics, which was only for the spiritual elite, but a a new revelation, that is the New Testament, which has been revealed to his saints. It's for all his saints. And it is to them that God willed what are made known, uh, what are the riches of his glory, of the mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you. And then again we have a return to the theme of the hope of glory. And then he says, it is him we preach, warning every man and teaching every man, not just the elite, but every man, all wisdom. Again, wisdom is a important code word in Gnosticism. It's only for the spiritually elite. That was their thinking. But in Christianity, the wisdom is for every believer has equal access to the wisdom of God. And then starting in verse in chapter 2, he talks about the fact that that this uh, there is complete knowledge in Christ. Complete knowledge of Christ, verse 2, talks about the riches of the full assurance of understanding. It's available to every believer, uh, to the knowledge of the mystery of God. That's for every believer, both of the Father and of Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. You want to have real wisdom and knowledge? It's not in esoteric philosophy. It's not in New Age thinking. It is in the knowledge of the Scriptures and in Jesus Christ and that's available to every believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, not just some spiritual elite. And then in verse 6, he emphasizes the fact that uh, you, you, as you received Christ, Jesus the Lord, so we are to walk in him, uh, rooted and built up in him. Uh, excuse me, I pointed to two imperatives earlier in 16 and 17. The first two imperatives actually are here. Walk in him is an imperative in verse 6, and beware in verse 8 is an imperative. So you have four imperatives in chapter 2, one in verse 6, walk in him, one in verse 8, beware, one in verse 16, uh, let no one judge you, and one in 18, let no one cheat you. Those are the four imperatives in chapter 2. He says, as you receive Christ, Jesus, walk in him. How did you receive him? Faith. We walk by faith and not by sight, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 7. That doesn't mean that that walking by faith doesn't include certain procedures that are relevant and important to the Christian life. We're to confess our sins. We're to pray. We are to witness. We're to read the scriptures. We are to study. We're to worship. All of those are things that are part of our walk of faith. They're not juxtaposed to a walk in faith. We don't just say, well, I am believing God will forgive me of my sins and then never think about it again. 
That's not what the scripture says. That has more to do with the Keswick view of sanctification, not the biblical view of sanctification. So we are to walk in Jesus by means of faith, and that means we are to be rooted and built up in him and established in the faith that is in the body of doctrine that is ours, in the faith as you have been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. And then we're warned against philosophy, that let let someone cheat us through philosophy or empty deceit. And the explanation is that because in Christ, in him, all the fullness of the Godhead dwells bodily, and we are complete in him positionally. So then he goes on to refute legalism, mysticism, and asceticism. Legalism is refuted in verses 11 through 15 because... On the cross, Jesus Christ wiped out the certificate of debt against us. We have forgiveness because of what Christ did for us. Now, that's legal forgiveness. The penalty of sin is forgiven and wiped out. So the issue for the unbeliever isn't sin. It's Christ. His sin's been paid for. But if he rejects Christ, he can't be regenerated and he can't receive the perfect righteousness of God so that he can have a relationship with God for eternity. And so at the great white throne judgment, he's condemned because he hasn't got the right kind of righteousness and because he is still spiritually dead in his trespasses and sins. But Jesus did the objective payment on the cross. That's what it states in verse at the end of verse 14, that he has taken it, that is the certificate of debt, out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. This forgiveness didn't occur when you trusted Jesus. It occurred at the cross. Now, positionally in Christ, we receive a positional forgiveness when we trust in him. That's a different forgiveness. I pointed out four distinct forgivenesses in the scriptures before the uh, objective forgiveness of the sin penalty in, uh, at the cross. That's the first kind. The second kind is positional forgiveness, which comes to the person at the time they believe in Jesus Christ. The third is experiential forgiveness, which occurs each time we confess our sins. And the fourth is relational forgiveness each time we uh, forgive one another. As a result of this, two imperatives, let no one judge you, verse 16, on the basis of superficial external uh, mandates, and verse 18, let no one cheat you of your reward. Again, focusing on the future. If you're living on the basis of a pseudo-Christ and a pseudo-spiritual life, you'll end up with bupkis at the judgment seat of Christ, and you'll enter heaven yet as through fire with nothing, and there'll be shame at the judgment seat of Christ. He, uh, in verses 18 and 19, he refutes the uh, mystical idea of uh, focusing on uh, angels and things which we've not seen. That is the whole uh, emanation letter of uh, emanations from God. And in verses 20 through 23, he refutes the asceticism, which is the focus on just giving up externals because somehow in the giving up of things, one becomes spiritual. All of that is the doctrinal foundation for understanding the imperatives of chapter 3. Chapter 3 shifts to the fact that because Jesus Christ is sufficient and superior and sovereign, we are to live a certain way. We are to submit to his authority because he is the head of the church. 
In verse 1, we learn that we are to put our focus on the things above. We're to have the priorities that God has and not the priorities that our friends and neighbors have. Second, we're to set our mind on the things above, that is, on eternal truth and not on relative truth. Um, then our third command, as I pointed out earlier, we're put to debt the members on earth. This is a term related to Paul's discussion on sanctification in, in uh, Romans chapter 6, that when we trust in Christ, we're identified with his death, burial, and resurrection, and therefore at that point we are freed from the, uh, positionally freed from the power of sin in our life. So we are to reckon ourselves, Paul says in uh, Romans 6.10, dead to sin. We do this by putting off sin, that is, stop doing it. Very simple. Don't do it. You can't do it in the flesh. You can only do it in the power of the Spirit. And he emphasizes putting off in verse 8 and putting on, that is the character qualities that should characterize us. In other passages, we learn that this relates to the fruit of the Spirit, the result of walking by the Spirit, Galatians 5, 16 to 22. And above all things, we're to put on love, which is the bond of perfection, that is for the mature believer. And then we have two imperatives to present active imperatives in verses 15 and 16, indicating that this should characterize our life at, uh, all the time. We're to let the peace of Christ, peace of God, there's a textual problem there, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which also you were called in one body, and be thankful. And in verse 16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly with all wisdom. You do that through the filling ministry of God the Holy Spirit, because the results of letting the, uh, these two commands are the same as the results of being filled by means of the Spirit in Ephesians 5.18. And that involves uh, t- teaching, admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. How about that? We admonish each other not by getting in somebody else's face and saying, you need to straighten your life out. We admonish one another by singing hymns and psalms and spiritual songs. So singing hymns isn't just something you tack on at the beginning of the service because that's what we do traditionally, according to Paul in both Ephesians 5.19 and here in, in Colossians uh, 3.16. It's part of the indication that you're a growing, maturing believer. And if you don't like singing and you don't like singing hymns, you need to have a little sit down with the Word of God and the Spirit of God because maybe you're not growing as a believer. Just something the Word of God says. Then it has application in the Christian home. All of these are present active imperatives, which indicates they should be a continuous characteristic in our life. Wives are to submit to their husbands. Husbands, you are to love your wives and not be bitter toward them. Children, you are to obey your parents in all things, not just the things you think they know something about. Fathers are not to provoke their children, lest they become discouraged. Bond servants are to obey their masters, and if bond servants are to obey their masters, it stands to reason that employees should uh, obey their employers. Not as men-pleasers, but fearing God and doing it to honor Christ. Because verse 23 says, whatever you do, another commandment, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men. Uh, We are to serve the Lord Christ, verse 24, 
And then when we get into chapter 4, Masters, give your bondservants what is just and fair, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Implication, you will be held accountable for how you take care of your employees or your slaves. Uh, chapter, uh, starting in 4.2, we have a return to the emphasis in prayer. Continue earnestly in prayer, being diligent in it with thanksgiving. If you always thank God for all the things you don't like about in your life, after you do it 150 times, you'll start to actually become thankful for the things that, you, that God has given you that you weren't really that thankful for to begin with. We, fifth, we are to walk in wisdom. That's the last command in reference to the spiritual life in the Scripture. Walk in wisdom by redeeming the time. Interesting, time management is a reflection of your ability to walk in wisdom. I know that gets convicting. Let's move on. The conclusion to the epistle is in verse 7 to 18, where he gives a, a various greetings and short messages in relation to those who are with him, to those who are in Colossae because they know one another. He mentions Tychicus, Onesimus, Aristarchus, Mark, uh, Barnabas, uh, Justice, who's uh, Jesus, who's called Justice, uh, Epaphras, uh, Luke, and Demas as well. So the main message in Colossians is that Jesus Christ, the true Jesus Christ, is sufficient, and only the sufficient Christ changes lives with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word uh, this morning. We thank you for the fact that Jesus Christ is preeminent, that he is eternal, he is fully God, and because of who he is, he was able to go to the cross and die there for us as a human being, fully human, able to die as our substitute, pay the penalty, eradicate the debt, reconcile us to you so that by faith alone we could have eternal life. We live today in the light of our hope of the future, that we are qualified to share in the inheritance of the saints and that that inheritance only moves from potential to reality when we live on the basis of the Christian life, living in light of the reality of who Jesus is and what he has done for us. And, Father, we pray that you would strengthen us to do that. We pray for anyone who's here this morning who's never trusted in Christ, who's unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to do so. The instant that you trust in Jesus, when you believe in him, you have eternal life, and that can never be taken from you. So, Father, we pray that you would... Uh, make the gospel clear to each one here who needs to hear it and that they would respond in faith. The instant you believe Jesus died for you, you have eternal life, which can never be taken from you. Father, we pray that you would challenge each of us with what we studied this morning. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.